Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Wendy Botero, who's a reader in sociology at the University of Manchester, about her new book, A Sense of Inequality. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, This is a brilliant book. I think it's a really important book. um, And I think it engages with both contemporary society, but also offers, uh, I think, a solution to a whole range of kind of theoretical problems um, that sociology has encountered. And it's fantastic to have such, I think, a kind of, you know, a weighty and an important book on the podcast. But before we even, you know, kind of get into it and start talking about it, I'm quite interested in in, in sort of what drove you to write it. And, and, and I guess the kind of uh, the process of, of thinking about making a, a a kind of theoretical contribution to the study of inequality? Oh, uh, so I sort of felt that there was a lot of work uh, in different branches uh, uh, of the broad topic of uh, subjective inequality, which is what the book is about. Um, uh, But they didn't really speak to each other. Um, uh, And I thought there were a lot of overlaps and a lot of sort of common themes. But I think the main thing that, that prompted me to do the book was... The, the fact that I disagreed with large amounts of the literature that I was reading um, or, or felt that something wasn't quite right in how things were being presented. And I think this, the, the, the main issue was I felt that uh, that people were being, ordinary people's uh, understandings of inequality were being presented as limited or restricted or, or distorted. And I, I don't necessarily take issue with that in and of itself, but, but I think I, I felt that there was a, I think we all have limited understandings of the world in which we live. Um, but but I felt that there was a kind of a casting of people as dupes uh, too often uh, in social analysis. And more recently in kind of political discourse, we see the same sort of thing in a much cruder form where, where people are presented as sheep or, you know, following uh, uh, the, her- the herd. And, and I sort of felt, well, we need to give people more credit than that. And also it's a very poor political strategy to sort of 
suggest that we need to reach out to people and, and, and re-educate them um, uh, as a way of Im improving their lives. So, so I felt the kind of conversation uh, about how people understand their own lives was a, a, a very much a patronising one. I felt the empirical picture was actually much more complex uh, than that. And, and that's one of the things I, I try and sort of uh, unpack in the book. Yeah, I, I think the book charts that really well because it, it takes... Uh, the reader through, I guess, the various sort of issues of inequality, how inequality is, you know, potentially kind of naturalized, misrecognized, but then starts to challenge that um, framework that suggests um, the persistence of inequality is just founded in, in, in misrecognition in, in lots of different ways. Uh, and I guess that's, that's the place to start about the book is what, what is this? sense of inequality you you mentioned kind of subjective understandings already but 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 what do you mean by that sense of inequality so uh, it's a pretty broad understanding but subjective inequality in the sense of how do ordinary people perceive interpret understand and react to to issues of inequality um as i say it's a kind of broad approach so I look at a range of different literatures uh, uh, on it, work on social attitudes and perceptions, uh, work on symbolic legitimation and misrecognition, uh, research on affect and struggles for recognition, uh, social movements research, resistance studies, and then also interactionist and pragmatist approaches to everyday sense-making. But but all of those approaches are really interesting how, how people come to view uh, troubling social situations as inequalities and how inequalities come to be seen as susceptible to um, intervention and change. I guess that sense of, uh, one word you use actually is, is, is the kind of the sense of inequality being naturalised. Um, and I was very interested in, in that actually, that um, it's not just a, a matter of people recognising or perceiving inequality, but a sense that inequality becomes kind of natural or, or normal. And in introducing that, you also introduce the, I guess, the limits to that, which is um, a theme that runs throughout the book, I guess, you know, kind of introducing a concept like the naturalisation of inequality, but then also wanting to be kind of cautious and, and suggesting it has limits. Well, I think, uh, so I, I don't want to suggest that the kind of concepts like symbolic legitimation or naturalisation don't do some work. I think they do. Um, but I think they've been massively overblown uh, in terms of their explanatory potential. Um, uh, so I think one of the things that, that people do is is they, they make too broad a, a set of claims um, uh, around um, the reach um, and penetration of things like symbolic legitimation or the extent to which we do naturalize. So we do take many aspects of our social environment for granted. Um, uh, we all do that. We do become resigned uh, uh, to situations and see them as being uh, uh, hard to change. But that's not always the case. And if you look at, I mean, yes, at the moment, um, I mean, I teach a course on, on subjective inequality to uh, uh, third year undergraduates. Um, and as I say to them, it, you know, it's kicking off all over the globe at the moment uh, in terms of protest, uh, revolt, dissent, uh, in, in, in some cases in very difficult uh, authoritarian uh, uh, contexts. So, so if people really are uh, being duped by the system, it's not working terribly well, is it? That actually is, is a really nice point that you you open the book with um, in the way that uh, you try and chart the way that there are these like weird paradoxes about people's uh, feelings and, and kind of perceptions 
of inequality and and you know again you, you mentioned things being kind of um a, a, a lively all over the world and the context are really really crucial um in helping us to differentiate i guess people's understandings about inequality well i think if, if we take concepts like symbolic legitimation naturalization symbolic domination there's a whole bunch of them hegemony um uh internalization so i, I could go on but i won't um uh, all of them are, are quite good in explaining why people don't react to inequality, why they do you know, put up with it. Uh, and people do put up with inequality uh, for, for most of the time, but, 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 but not all of the time. Um, uh, and when we try to explain why people do dissent, why they do process, why they do revolt, um, those concepts are, are really left um, uh, looking very thin uh, to explain what is going on. I wonder if you could give like a, a practical example. Like, um, well, one of the things you pick up quite <clears throat> early on in the book is how, say, China and America are very different in the way the populations like feel about inequality, about the way they react to inequality, um, and, and in some ways, this shows again, you know, the kind of usefulness of the limits of of these um, explanations about inequality. Well, I mean, uh, so. So it, work on attitudes, uh, which is where that that, that kind of comparison uh, uh, comes from, the chapter on attitudes and perception, which is based on survey research. Um, both of those are countries with very high levels um, uh, uh, of inequality. And China in particular in the last sort of 30 years has had a massive increase in economic um, uh, uh, inequality. Um, uh, America too has had a big increase, but, but perhaps not at the same kind of scale um, as the Chinese case. Um, in, in China, we don't see a huge amount of dissatisfaction uh, uh, with inequality um, uh, in attitude research, uh, certainly. Um, uh, and some people have suggested that kind of the massive growth that has uh, been associated with so inequality has increased in China because of the market reforms, but that's also increased standards of living um, uh, for people in China um, uh, and, and brought millions out uh, of poverty. And some people um, uh, in the attitudes uh, uh, literature suggest well, that if people can see opportunities improving for themselves. Um, uh, then um, uh, they're they're more likely to say, okay, well, I don't I don't care too much uh, about widening inequality as long as um, uh, my own situation um, uh, is improving uh, or there are you know good opportunities. People sometimes make similar arguments uh, about America and kind of you know notions of the American dream, sort of kind of notion of a you know opportunity based uh, society. But re- research in America sort of indicates that it's not as straightforward as that. So, but really nice book by uh, Lois McCall called The Undeserving Rich, which is about attitudes um, uh, in America. And, and one of the things that, that's happened in America is that um, uh, there's been very inequitable uh, rewards to growth. So there has been growth in America, but it, most of it has been taken by the rich. Um, uh, and the kind of middle and bottom uh, of society in America has has stagnated. Um, and, and Lois McCall finds that you know, people are aware of that, and, and they're concerned not just about opportunities, but the distribution uh, uh, of opportunities. Uh, so I think we can see you know, big differences um, uh, uh, between China uh, and America in that respect. But of course, the other issue that, that comes out of the kind of the Chinese data um, uh, is uh, the extent to which people focus on their local situation and their immediate 
uh, uh, milieu. So when when people are, are thinking about inequality, uh, so some of the survey research indicates that in China, people are thinking about their their local uh, situation. Actually, this is a more general uh, uh, tendency. We see it in, in a, a range of uh, uh, countries, uh, but of course. When we think about neighbourhoods or work situations, those are already sorted by inequality. They're already we see a high level of segregation, um, uh, so people are likely to see people from a shorter range uh, of inequality if they're comparing within their neighbourhoods, family, friends, work, work uh, colleagues, and so on. Um, uh, and uh, uh, people are much less concerned uh, about inequality in their local situation because they see less of it. Uh, we do see that uh, in the Chinese situation. But in China, we also see something else, uh, which is what we know that, that one of the concerns people have is about whether the outcomes uh, we see in society are fairly produced. And, and there are big concerns in China about corruption, uh, corruption of local official, officials, uh, for example. Um, uh, and that has produced a series of protests, locally organised uh, pro protests in China, which are, are, are about uh, corruption. We, we need a, a, a little bit of caution when we talk about China, because obviously, uh, although we see lots of local protests in China, uh, they're often very careful not to uh, aim against uh, the Communist Party or the central state. Uh, and that's partly to, to do with the history of repression um, uh, against uh, communist uh, protest against Communist Party rule there uh, as well. Your, your China example is fascinating, actually, because it it kind of sums up um, one of the big stories the book is trying to tell about, you know, people have um, varieties of recognition of inequality. They uh, adapt and resist and, you know, uh, are sort of active in both the replication but also the rejection or, or challenges to, to inequality in there in their everyday lives. And I suppose you're um, kind of placing that idea in opposition to theories that would say people just misrecognize inequality, uh, whether it's because they believe in meritocracy or whether it's because they, you know, kind of have like common sense ideas about how the world works. Actually, there is a strain of sociological thought that says the story here is, is misrecognition. And I guess it'd be useful to hear uh, a bit more about the theories that you're um, arguing against. So uh, there are a bunch of theories of, of, of misrecognition, and um, some of them are to do with um, uh, what I've just talked about, the kind of uh, uh, restricted reference groups that, that people have. So the kind of, you know, people have local points of view, they tend not to see uh, the full scale uh, of inequality. Um, uh, so that's, so they misrecognize or, mis or un underestimate the amount of inequality uh, that there is. So that's one version um, uh, uh, of that kind of argument. But there are uh, other arguments which see misrecognition as a much more ideologically driven uh, uh, process as a form of kind of systematically distorted uh, understanding and, and people look to the uh, uh, the role of, uh, say, the media, for example, in, in, in promoting a, a particular view uh, 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 of society. Um, uh, 
so you know meritocracy for example the idea that you know people uh, if people work hard they they will get uh, the, the the rewards they deserve uh, uh, for example uh, and the outcomes reflect um uh, effort and ability that's seen as a, a, a an ideology which legitimates um, uh, uh, inequality and individualizes it makes it seem as a, a question of personal success or failure um, uh, about individual attributes rather than kind of the structural factors whether there are decent jobs good educational opportunities and so on um, uh, uh, so it disguises or distorts um, uh, both the causes of inequality, but also uh, the amount uh, of inequality. Um, uh, I suppose naturalisation is, is is one of uh, uh, those versions um, uh, of misrecognition, um, uh, and we can see we can see different types of the kind of naturalisation argument. In, in one version, inequality becomes seen as part of the natural order of life, reflecting innate differences in people's abilities. So that would be, for example, notion of meritocracy. But you know, earlier in time, we you know, divine right of kings, that sort of thing, that, that some people are inherently better than others, and then therefore they deserve more. Um, but it, it, there are kind of slightly less strong versions of that argument in, in which it is, it's, it's less that inequality is seen as just or fair uh, and more that it just is seen as inevitable or at least enormously difficult uh, uh, to change. So people become resigned uh, uh, to it. But in both those versions, uh, the process of naturalisation shifts inequality from a, a practical and changeable social problem into a self-evident feature of our environment, a taken for granted fact of life and if people see something as a fact of life they won't agitate to change it so the argument is that naturalization helps to reproduce uh, inequality i don't know about you but i'm very busy and i don't have a lot of time to cook that's why i subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two minute meals factor meals are ready to eat in heat so there's no prepping cooking or cleanup needed they're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Well, I suppose the thing you're arguing is the sense that inequality is like struggled over and critiqued in people's everyday lives and in their, their everyday uh, practices. Um, and by the middle of the book, you're, you're starting to give uh, a range of, of different examples and consider a range of alternative um, theoretical frameworks that say that actually, you know, um, there are a range of kind of, you know, sanctions, justifications for inequality in everyday life, but actually these are subject to struggle and, and, and critique. Yes, well, I think, uh, so uh, again, I, I don't want to sort of say that there is no such thing as naturalisation or symbolic legitimation um, or internalisation uh, of inequality, which is another uh, concept in 
um, uh, in which people, um, uh, which subordinate groups uh, come to internalise at least some of the values which position them um, uh, as inferior, and which affects their self worth, their sense of empowerment. And so we can see all of these things happening. Um, the, the the issue is that they seem to be relatively limited in their scope and, uh, and reach. So we can always see cracks in the system. Uh, uh, so people do uh, accept uh, uh, ideas of meritocracy, for example, but we can also see that they also believe in, in kind of structural factors affecting uh, uh, social outcomes. Um, and, and actually, when we look at who... Um, uh, uh, swallows, you know, kind of meritocratic ideologies uh, the most wholeheartedly. It tends to be elite groups who most believe uh, in meritocratic uh, outcomes. Uh, As we move down the social scale, people become more sceptical, for example. Um, uh, Now, it it is more complex than that. Um, So you say it is sort of, you know, struggled over uh, and contested, but the process of struggle um, uh, doesn't always get people out of their uh, situation, uh, uh, for example. So, I mean, there's some very interesting research on uh, people uh, living on welfare benefits or, or living in, in poverty, uh, uh, you know, very low incomes, uh, which, which shows, and, and those are, uh, you know, we, we think about public discourses of, of, of welfare recipients or, or, or the poor, um, uh, and there are kind of you know, very stigmatising discourses uh, of people in that situation, which you know, say that they're scroungers, that they don't work hard, uh, that they um, uh, they've got kind of uh, feckless lifestyles, uh, and, and so on, which is kind of you know, blame the victim uh, type discourses. And what what we find is that uh, the empirical research shows that people in those situations, but people who are you, you know uh, make strenuous efforts uh, uh, to resist. Uh, uh, those discourses, but they often do that by kind of what, what, what's been called defensive othering, where they, you know, they resist the stigma of poverty by sort of talking about other people who are poor, who are blameworthy uh, in some uh, uh, fashion. Um, now, of course, that helps to reproduce um, uh, discourses uh, 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 of the undeserving poor. If the poor themselves uh, talk about, you know, these feckless layabouts uh, who are claiming benefits when they shouldn't be, uh, and so on. And we do see those discourses amongst poor people. Um, on the other hand, we can sort of say that when poor people talk about their own situation, they don't engage in those blame the victim uh, type. They, they talk about the structural factors, the labour market conditions, um, uh, uh, which have affected uh, uh, their situation. Um, so it's a very complex picture, um, uh, and we always need to sort of qualify um, uh, and contextualise um, uh, uh, accounts of internalisation or naturalisation. And I suppose we see a similar dynamic in terms of that needing to, you know, kind of complicate and, and give nuance to accounts when we think about protests. So you know, you, you mentioned the kind of the, the China example in, in terms of the. Uh, constraints or uh, limitations on on protests, but but one of the things I was really struck by was um, the the way you take a broad view uh, of protest and you draw from new social movements theory to think about how particular inequalities um, have been both you know kind of culturally produced, culturally sustained, but also protested, challenged, transformed. Uh, in terms of um, particular battles over, say, gender or, or sexuality in, in, in society. And again, I think that dynamic of the need for nuance and the need to kind of complicate explanations that say that nobody is protesting, people are, you know, 
uh, kind of naturalized uh, in their misrecognitions of inequality is, is really crucial in the middle part of the book. Well, I mean, so the, the I mean, social protest li- literature is interesting because it doesn't say a huge amount about uh, arguments around symbolic uh, legitimation or, or hegemony, uh, for example. Th- those are, and of course, they're looking at when people do uh, uh, protest. But, 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 but interesting, they're also focused on a similar sort of question that we see in in theories of uh, uh, symbolic legitimation, which is, you know, why don't people who are aggrieved protest. Um, uh, and in those uh, debates, there's a, a big focus on the, the various kinds of constraints which stop uh, people mobilising uh, or prote- protesting. Now, of course, they're interesting when people are able to overcome that. So they look at the kind of the enabling uh, conditions which uh, uh, allow people um, uh, uh, to protest or, 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 or mobilise. But so they, they look at a range of things which affects people's people's ability uh, uh, to to, to mobilise. Risks of repression are the obvious one, um, uh, but also the, the costs uh, uh, to people um, uh, uh, through uh, disrupting their daily lives. Um, uh, uh, you know, so yeah, people have got you know jobs to go to, uh, uh, rent to pay, uh, yeah, mouths to feed. Um, uh, uh, so the kind of the practical obligations and commitments of, of people's everyday lives are one of the factors which prevent people um, uh, uh, from mobilising. Um, but even in the most authoritarian situations, people do uh, mobilise um, uh, uh, and protest, and it's the same kinds of obligations and commitments uh, which sometimes can be turned around to to uh, uh, give people um, uh, first the kind of motivation uh, uh, to protest, but also that it gives them a kind of interdependent power. Uh, and that's the, uh, a term that's been used by Francis Fox Pivum, um, uh, in, in which so you know social life depends on people going about their business and cooperating um uh and if we withdraw cooperation uh, that gives us uh, a potential power um, uh, in social situations there are great costs in withdrawing that cooperation but nonetheless there is power for even the most disadvantaged uh, uh people and if we look at the the history uh, of, of protests if we look at um, the civil rights movement, if we look at the feminist movement, uh, for example, these are sort of the classic forms of social movement that have been studied in social movement studies. But also if we look at um, uh, protests uh, 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 and revolt against colonialism, so some of the most successful uh, uh, protests have been the kind of anti-colonial neo uh, 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 movements um, uh, uh, in various countries. Um, uh, we can see that... Uh, yeah, protests can have really transformatory uh, uh, consequences, um, uh, however hard it is uh, 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 to, to mobilise. And of course, there are counter mobilisations and all of those projects have been very un- incompletely realised. Um, but but nonetheless, it's, you know, most of the rights we have today um, uh, have emerged through struggle and protest. They weren't granted to people. Um, so protests have a real force well one of the things i really like about the book is is the way that as a reader you can sort of see your thought pattern in in raising ideas and then you know kind of challenging them and it strikes me as you're talking about um the victories of protest on the kind of the big level you know civil rights movement feminist movement that kind of thing uh where we have i'd say quite 
reasonably well-developed histories, you know, uh, both in terms of historical records and, 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 and writing and, and reflection on those social movements. You, you also <clears throat> apply, uh, I suppose, the uh, effectiveness of, of resistance to that more uh, mundane and everyday set of practices. But one of the questions you raised for yourself is, but how do we know that, you know, every day what we might call resistance is resistance? Is it a coping mechanism, actually? And should we think about, you know, calling everyday resistance actually another form of misrecognition? Oh, well, so I mean, I think, um, so, so I mean, theories of, of um, I call them mundane resistance, can I kind of draw together uh, you know, Scott's concept of uh, everyday resistance, you know, Deserto's concept of, uh, of tactics, Atroyd and Thompson's uh, uh, account of organisational misbehaviour and a bunch of other um, uh, uh, accounts of resistance uh, as well. But but all of those um, uh, approaches really sort of say, well, if, if we focus too much on organised uh, mobilisation, you know, collective group uh, protest uh, and so on, we're, we're kind of really, that's only the tip of the iceberg uh, and we're missing the kind of huge mass of kind of mundane dissent, rule-breaking, recalcitrance, insubordination and subversion that goes that goes on um, uh, in everyday life. And, 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 and their argument was if we look more broadly, we can see huge amounts of subversion which really undermine the notion that that people have um, uh, are symbolically dominated that they that there is hegemony uh, that, that that people naturalize uh, uh, their situation. Now that the problem with that argument is if there really is so much everyday resistance, subversion, and so on going on, um, uh, how is it that inequality still uh, uh, carries on? Um, how is it that we still see you know very stark. Uh, 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 power imbalances, um, uh, uh, domination, and so on. Um, uh, if everybody um, is not assenting to the system, what, how can we explain uh, the reproduction of inequality um, uh, uh, over time? Um, and so, so sometimes the kind of you know, theorists of symbolic legitimation come back uh, on that point and sort of say, well, okay. Um, uh, maybe people are dissenting, but 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 what they're what they're doing is they're just letting off steam. Uh, it's just a coping mechanism. So if if people you know um, disobey the rules uh, uh, at work, if they kind of slack up back off early, uh, if they throw a spatter in the works, so the sort of classic phrase. Um, uh, that's just a way of of of, of making their lives bearable, bearable at work. It doesn't actually stop um, uh, uh, the kind of uh, the, the relations of, of subordination that they're engaged in. It just makes it easier to breathe. Um, uh, and I think that's a, a fair 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 sort of point. You know, we, we we could sort of say that a lot of those are uh, uh, coping uh, mechanisms. But if we're saying that resistance is only resistance if it if it's capable of o over overturning the system, um, that's a fairly high high bar um, uh, uh, to set for kind of you know, mundane forms of uh, uh, dissent and subversion. Um, and, and also, I think it kind of misses the point. So you know, you know, people feel that they have to do that to make their lives bearable. That's hardly an endorsement of the status quo. Um, uh, uh, for starters, so it, it, it's hardly acquiescence to uh, authority in the first place. But in, but in the second place, it shows that people are doing what they can uh, to change their situation. 
um, uh, and that strongly suggests that they don't, don't they don't treat their, their social situation as self-evident or taken for granted. They're doing what they can. They're just very practically constrained um, uh, in what they can achieve. So I think I think the kind of notion of of you know, are people really resisting um, uh, is it, it, in a sense uh, uh, the wrong way of thinking about it because because it fails to sort of say well wh- why are people acting in this way? Uh, it fails to treat people's actions on their own. T- terms and too often in work on subjective inequality I feel that the the, the main focus is on on whether people are are you know dissenting or uh, accepting uh, the uh, inequality whether they're acquiescing or um, uh, 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 protesting against it and and I think okay that's fair enough so you know assent or dissent to inequality is an important issue but first we have to sort of understand people's actions on their own terms how they make sense of their situation in terms of their practical uh, engagements what they're trying to achieve uh, and how they use knowledge as a tool to do things uh, in given uh, situations and I think that failure to sort of you know look at people's behavior in its own terms uh, I think is a, a major failing in work on uh, subjective inequality we're always looking beyond that uh, uh, to the big questions of the reproduction of inequality and I think clearly the reproduction of inequality is an important issue uh, to explore but we're not going to understand it unless we properly understand how people see the world and why they act in the way that they do I mean that is the central thesis of the book that you've laid out you know kind of really really perfectly there and I guess it prompts the question of what are the implications for kind of uh, on the one hand doing social science if we're interested in this uh, pragmatic focus on uh, the constrained everyday actions of individuals but also what are the implications for social change as well particularly in the context that I don't think it's unfair to characterise many of the uh, theories of uh, symbolic legitimation, misrecognition, whatever uh, particular kind of starting point they have, but they share a kind of uh, political social project for social change. Um, and indeed, you know, in the stronger theories, their uh, use of ideas like hegemony are there to uh, account for why social change maybe doesn't happen or why particular tactics are needed. So what would your more pragmatic, everyday attentive um, approach mean for social science and for our understanding of social change? Uh, so those are big questions. Yeah. Um, um, and I do try to explore them uh, uh, in the book. So I think, so I think the, 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 the first lesson I, I, I would draw is that um, is to reject the notion of sociologist as saviour. Um, uh, uh, and to, I mean, I'm, I'm not the first person to say that. There's a, I think it's Luke Poltansky who uses that exact phrase. But um, I, I think uh, so. If we if we see um, the reproduction of inequality is too often seen as a pro- as, as a problem of, of of people's limited knowledge. Uh, uh, people don't understand the system that they're in, and if they did understand it, they would overturn it. That's the kind of the assumption uh, behind a lot of, of those theories. But it, but if people have poor understandings of their situation, then then it's the role of the analysts to come in and to explain to them uh, and to show them uh, uh, the error uh, uh, of their ways. Um, and I I think that. Uh, that that assumes that firstly you know, that, that 
that people are deluded, and I, I've said, I've said, you know, in, in our discussion, I'm, uh, you know, I, I think they're not as deluded as, as many of these accounts uh, seem to suggest. People have a pretty good sense of their uh, situation, uh, although it's very practically driven. Um, uh, uh, but on, but the other point to, to make in relationship to that is that. The assumption uh, is that knowing what is wrong with the situation means that you can change it. Um, and of course, if you don't know what's wrong with the situation, you can't change it. But but simply because you do know, uh, you know, many of the kind of uh, problems of inequality are problems of uh, uh, collective action, which need to be uh, resolved before uh, anything uh, uh, can be done to uh, address the situation. There are problems of uh, uh, cooperative uh, activity, which need to be resolved and vested interests, which need to be uh, uh, addressed. So, so simply knowing what to do doesn't necessarily get, get us to uh, resolve uh, the situation. Um, but the other thing uh, I would argue is, is is that if we're really interested in in social change, we we need I think to look much more locally uh, about how people understand the situation and and how they uh, define uh, uh, the problems that they are experiencing, um, uh, and and rather than kind of um, uh, the analyst having the kind of a superior global point of view. I adopt a, a view of knowledge uh, in which all knowledge is is practically organised, um, uh, tools for doing things uh, in the world. Analysts are doing different things in the world, so they have a kind of different view. They have a more totalising uh, uh, point of view. But that's not necessarily um, uh, uh, going to help uh, uh, people in their more practically situated uh, 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 problems. Um, uh, and the, the assumption that, that there is kind of a, a epistemological superiority uh, uh, of the analysts, I think, is, is a, a deeply problematic um, one. So I think if we're interested in social change, I mean, you know, uh, D'Souza Santos sort of says that the analyst needs to walk along with people. So I think for me, um, the, the ultimate validation of knowledge comes in, in, in whether it can change things, um, uh, whether uh, there are kind of practical consequences for thinking uh, uh, in a particular way. Um, uh, but that must rest, um, uh, that validation must rest with the people who are experiencing uh, uh, the difficulties uh, and problems. And I think we need to walk along with them uh, rather than standing above them and showing them what to do. I mean, we've only really scratched the surface of the book. It's an incredibly uh, detailed, incredibly rich text that kind of ranges over a whole um, different um, set of literatures and, you know, both, you know, social theory, uh, some in, in, you know, a great deal of empirical social science. And so in that context, it seems really cruel and unusual to ask you what you're working on next. <laughs> Um, uh, so, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm lying down in a ditch, you know, sleeping. Um, no, uh, so I do have another project uh, in mind. I'm not, I'm not quite there with it yet. Uh, uh, so I want to. So one of the one of the arguments in the book, so I'm kind of picking up on one of the kind of arguments in the book is, is that um, uh, people take take part in, in, in social arrangements. 
that they don't necessarily support or endorse for a great variety of reasons so that we engage in in a great variety of kind of collective social uh, uh, practices because we have to because uh, uh, it helps us to do something else that we do value uh, uh, because um, uh, it helps someone we like uh, a whole variety or because we think other people will do it and if we don't we will stand out so so there's a whole variety um, you know I could go on on that but that there are a, a huge variety of kind of practical obligations and commitments which keep us doing things that we don't necessarily uh, support and I think many people in the university context would say yes I do many things which I regard as absurd uh, or just plain wrong uh, but I can't seem to stop doing them yeah um, uh, so the the next project um, uh, is going to be called uh, grudging acts um, uh, and it's about um, how we take part in a lot of social practices very grudgingly um, uh, half-heartedly uh, ironically um, sarcastically uh, and so on um, it, it, but but in doing so of course we then create uh, the kind of collective pressures for other people who, who also have to uh, engage uh, uh, in, in those practices as well. Um, so I'm interested in the kind of the non-coerced, but also non-consenting uh, or not fully consented, the kind of you know, compliant but grudging uh, practices that we all engage in for large periods of our time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.